The Living Church, Catholic, Evangelical, Ecumenical. Mental health is a topic that is much more widely talked about than it used to be, but that wasn't always the case. And Christians still sometimes struggle to get a grip on how mental health intersects with our faith and witness. In a pandemic longer than most of us expected, looking toward what will likely be a difficult winter, these questions are newly, universally pertinent. Where is God in trauma, in repeated trauma, in prolonged fear and anxiety? How do we point to his presence? How do Christians faithfully inhabit very difficult personal situations? Not in a treacly way, not in a way that's ignoring reality, but in a way that's absolutely so grounded in reality that we experience the presence and power of Jesus meeting us where we are. Our guest today is the Reverend Rob Merchant. Rob is director of St. Melitus College in Chelmsford, where he serves on the leadership team, is involved in safeguarding practices, and teaches pastoral and sacramental theology. We'll hear him talk today with editor Mark Michael about his most recent book, Broken by Fear, Anchored in Hope, Faithfulness in an Age of Anxiety. Rob is also honest here, as he is many places elsewhere, about his own journey with depression, how he dealt with that initial diagnosis as a minister, an academic, and a teacher and how he now finds ways to allow God to use his story to help others. They also discuss the reports of widespread sexual abuse among church leadership and the importance of lament, safeguarding practices, and other practical steps church leaders today can take to cultivate atmospheres of healing and health in their churches. I'm looking forward to applying some of Rob's advice myself. As a note to listeners, there are no detailed descriptions of abuse or violence contained in this interview. We at TLC hope you enjoy today's episode. It's a great blessing to have you with us uh, on the podcast, Rob. Well, uh, Mark, thank you so much for having me as a part of this conversation. Rob and I actually were at theological college together many years ago at Wycliffe Hall in Oxford, and it's been wonderful to reconnect a little bit and see about what wonderful things he's been doing to serve the wider church since then. I want to uh, start with just a general question about the book. Um, can you tell uh, our listeners a little bit about your recent ministry and how you approach the issues of faith and mental illness that are at the forefront of Broken by Fear, Anchored in Hope? Well, I think over recent years, Mark, I've been noticing time and again the need for the need for honesty. I think particularly as I found myself training uh, uh, future leaders, uh, future deacons and priests within the Church of England. And I'm thinking to myself, actually, you know, sending all these amazing uh, men and women out to serve in all their different ways. And, And at the same time, wanting to share something of my own story, something of, well, what does it mean to live with 
long-term mental health. I increasingly found myself sort of chatting with the students and and sort of chatting with ordinands and and sort of reflecting with them and sort of hearing hearing their story. Um, and so, really, I guess it was prayerfully thinking maybe it's time for me to start being more open about my own story. Um, uh, not in order to attract attention to myself, but more as a way of being able to resource those I was training, those I was serving. And, and also, um, during, during the 2000s, Mark, I mean, you, as you were saying in your opening, we, uh, we spent time together in Oxford at Wycliffe Hall, which was wonderful. But it was also a period for me when when, uh, when sort of depression was beginning to rear its head in my life. And, um, and my wife, Tams, and I, we were ordained together and we did a job share curacy in, in, in Birmingham in the UK. And towards the end of that time, I was formally diagnosed with depression. And, and from that, I, I actually returned into an academic setting for a time. I, I continued to be a, a self-supporting minister in the Church of England, but I became principal lecturer in spirituality and health at a university called Staffordshire University. And, and, and uh, I was based in the Centre for Ageing and Mental Health. And what I found during the 2000s was an increasing willingness in society to talk about spirituality, to talk about the vitality of spirituality in relationship to mental health, that there's a substantive international um, uh, evidence base to show that uh, prayer, uh, to show that uh, spiritual resources can benefit our mental health. Um, and so I think it was a coalescing of these different aspects of my life. Um, that led me to sort of come to Broken by Fear, Anchored in Hope and sort of pour all of that into this one small book, really. I mean, what, it's sort of 90 odd pages. Um, and um, But yeah, to being able to pour that all together. That's wonderful. I mean, it, you're right that it is a short book, but it's a very, um, it's very powerful in the way that you narrate your own experience. Um, you talked about honesty um, the ability to kind of tell your story in a way that is vulnerable and humble. Um, I was noting that in the introduction, you describe yourself as a man of little faith who is slowly learning on his journey home to Jesus that when the storm of life surges with violence across our path, it is possible, just possible, not to be afraid. I mean, what a, what a very humble and, and vulnerable way to describe who you are and the struggles that you feel so deeply. This must have been very hard for you to get down on paper in some ways. And I'm curious about um, why did you choose this particular tone? I mean, you, you've you taught on, on these issues from a very kind of abstract uh, academic level. You, you're very learned in these fields. Um, why is it that you chose to take this very vulnerable tone to talk about these things in the book? Because I think it's so easy for those of us who are in positions of responsibility and of leadership to sort of wear a mask that says everything's okay. Um, there is such a tendency towards cult of celebrity or maybe a cult of status within parts of the church. Um, you know, it's, um, we, you know, I mean, we aren't rewarded by um, by uh, by sort of great earnings, but 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 through those that notice us, and and so I think 
one of the great dangers for those who hold roles of leadership within within the church is the danger that status consumes humility or maybe a sort of desire for for status a desire to be noticed um i, I didn't want to write the book I, I need to be honest from the outset mark i i took a sabbatical i was on sabbatical in 2018 in in the summer which which is and, and i sat down to write a follow-up book to the book i wrote to the book i published in 2003 which is on um, aging in the church my my academic interest is in gerontology in the in the sort of study of uh, in the study of aging and so i wrote a book uh, called pioneering the third age back in 2003 i've been chatting um with with some people about writing and i was going to write a follow-up to that book but during my sabbatical, every time I sat down and tried to write a follow-up, um, just the, the I, I couldn't do it. And I'd had writer's block for a number of years, and, and I'd wondered why. And I'd sort of prayerfully just exploring that during my sabbatical, I realized that, be, that that block was there because there was a story that needed to be told first. I, I really felt the Lord's nudge to say, this is the story that you need to write. You need to write your story, but but it, but in writing the story, I'm my hope and my intention was to encourage us to, I guess, to, to continuously look to Jesus. In writing the book, I don't want to say that my story is any more significant than anyone else's. Um, we all experience trauma in different ways. Lots of people carry stories of profound trauma in their lives, um, which is repeated and impacted so deep for them. But but is wanting to say, look, by learning how to talk about that which we would rather keep hidden, by by learning to walk out of the sort of shadow of of sort of trauma and this shadow that it casts over our life, actually. First of all, that's something of the Christian call to walk out of the shadows. That's the call of the garden of the Creator, who who asks, "Where are you?" Um, and and actually, in 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 that in that walking out of saying, "Here I am," in that is the sharing of our story, the reality of who we are. And and I guess the reason why I wanted, uh, why did I want to be show some humility? Well, I guess, look, I'm not better than anyone else. Um, I'm no different to anyone else. Um, I, I love Jesus, you know, um, I'm making my journey of discipleship home to him, like many, 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 many people through the ages and, and of this day. Um, and so it's just quite a simple chap, really, sharing his story and wanting to talk about Jesus as he does so. And I think that's exactly right. I mean, this is, in one sense, this book is about Rob Merchant's story, but it's also about Jesus to whom you are looking and who is sustaining you. As you know, this has been a, there've been a lot of memoirs of, of mental illness written in, in recent years. I've not read that many of them, but I, I do know that they differ substantially in the degree to which they accept the conditions that people are experiencing as normative and the degree to which they you know, whether they look at it as something I've put behind me or something I continue to struggle with. This does strike me as something quite different because God's involvement in the midst of your life, um, even before you you really had put your trust in him, and then the way that he has helped you, but also is with you when you struggle 
still now. It's it's the whole way through the story, and this is part of what makes it unique and powerful in in my in my reading, at least. Yeah, I, and I think it's that it's the reality that we are we are exiles together. We are on our journey home. We are people living in the time of tension of the kingdom that has come and is coming, um, and I. I, I one of the things I've been able to do while I've been at St. Melitus a couple of times is to help to co-lead a college pilgrimage to Rome. And um, and uh, one of the most moving moments for me has been going to the Church of St. Paul's outside the walls and going to the tomb of St. Paul. Um, and I've done this on both occasions I've been there now, going to the tomb and kneeling there and reading 1 Corinthians 15. Um, and as I kneel there, for me, it's a kind of a saying, yep, you and me, we are both waiting, you know, waiting for that trumpet call, you know, um, and it is that sense of, of, of how do we walk the Christian life in love and trust of Jesus, in full acknowledgement of who we are, with all the wrinkles and complexities of our lives, um, and, and I guess also that I'm, I'm not into triumphalism, um, or rather I'm not into self-triumphalism, I love singing about the glory of the kingdom of God. I, I love the, the majesty and the wonder of entering into worship in all its forms. I think that's wondrous. That's a kind of triumphant <laughs> sense I want to engage with. But there's a self-triumphalism that can say, hey, I've dealt with this. I've done it. You don't need to go back to it. But actually, the thing about sin and shame and the thing about trauma is that we continuously re-encounter it within our lives because we're human um, and because we're not yet there in Christ, known fully by him. And, and also, as I try and remind my students, you know, particularly if you hold, hold a role when you stand up in front of others, you are living this life out as a public disciple. You know, and therefore, how you live as a public disciple, actually, you're going to be enabling the discipleship of those around you so so how are you going to live are you going to live with a way that says i'm okay just do this and you'll be okay too or will you live in a way that says do you know what some days i'm not okay but and this is what i've learned about jesus in those days he's still here he's still present you know we can trust him for tomorrow and that authenticity is just crucial to our witness today i agree absolutely you had a, a very interesting comment, I thought, about anxiety early in the book. Uh, you were using sections of Psalm 142 to describe what it's like to be afraid. And you catalog lots of these feelings and thoughts as they rise up for you. And, and you say, we dress up fear these days with the more socially acceptable description of anxiety, which makes it sound rather like a doting great aunt than something lurking in the darkness. And I'm curious um, why you think it's important for us to talk about fear as, um, as, our, as the experience that so many people have um, and to use these rich biblical metaphors and descriptive language to get at it. Because fear is so visceral. Fear is, fear is that which we so immediately experience. Um, it's our amygdala's response to, to the external threat before our frontal cortex sort of kicks in and begins to sort of um, calm us down within that. You know, um, 
you know, you know, yeah, and for me, it's been the question of, well, why does Jesus say, do not be afraid? You know, if it's not because of fear. Um, and what is it that drives us into the shadows? What is it that drives man and woman into the shadows? You know, they were afraid. You know, fear um, drives us into hiddenness, into uh, um, drives us into places of shame and drives us um, to operate in a way that would say to the world, we're we're we're, you know, we're doing all right. But but behind that, actually, through a process of self-medicating behaviors, we are maintaining any sense of sort of normality that we can possibly manage. And my concern that when we use the word anxiety, um, I mean, ang I mean, um, anxiousness, that's a good word. But but this word anxiety, it's become so prevalent as a descriptor of so many different emotions and also very visceral emotions like fear. Um, and, and also it's as though anxiety, it's something, if we can name it and label it, we can medicalize it, we can treat it, we can treat your anxiety. But actually that's great, but actually fear still exists. Fear is that visceral feeling. And there is only one who can say, do not be afraid. There is only one who is able to calm the storm. There is only one who has defeated um, sin and death, and that is Jesus Christ. Um, and therefore, you know, I'm sorry, but I can't take a tablet <laughs> to sort of, you know. You know <laughs> this is a, yeah, fundamental to the human condition, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and so... And so importantly, I am not dismissing anxiety because I would say I am someone who lives with anxiety. Um, I am I have on my desk in front of me my packet of Prozac at the moment. The wonderful joy of uh, COVID-19 and lockdown meant that my normal routines went and I experienced episodic depression and anxiety because of my early developmental trauma. And sometimes um, um, I find that I I'm grateful for the use of medication. So I have my packet of my packet of fluoxetine in front of me. Um, so I'm not dismissing anxiety, but underneath that, I want to say actually there's something far more visceral, and acknowledging fear and the power of fear, and the power of fear that drives us um, into hiddenness is really important because it's only when we acknowledge its power that we can really hear the one who is saying to us, do not be afraid, and who calls us out of fear. Okay, I've got an announcement to make. Today is the 40th episode of the Living Church Podcast. We turned 40 today. Woohoo! Well, in a manner of speaking. And I want to take this occasion to remind you of something that's coming up in less than two weeks. Yes, Advent, and that is very important, but also Giving Tuesday. Wish us happy birthday by remembering on December 1st that TLC is a nonprofit 501c3 ministry. We produce this podcast, bring you church news coverage, cultural analysis, the award-winning theology blog Covenant, conferences and retreats, when we can go to conferences and retreats, and affordable ministry resources for preachers, teachers, and other church leaders like you. If you've got a second, put us in your calendar. Give to TLC on December 1st. Or if you're on the go, ask Siri to do it for you. She won't mind. Or if you can't wait, you can give now at livingchurch.org forward slash donate or click the link in the show notes. We're grateful for your generosity that's gotten us to the big 4-0, and we only look forward to more.
Your book, I think, was written. You must have finished the manuscript before the pandemic began. Oh yeah, I mean long before. Long before, right? But you yeah, yeah, you yeah. talk in there about the value of reclaiming the practice of lament, which is a deeply biblical practice, as an urgent task for communities of faith. And of course, now as so much more sorrow and suffering has been experienced across the world, it would seem an even more urgent task. And um, can you say a little more about why this is so important for us in times like this? Because lament enables us to inhabit the reality of loss and to inhabit the reality of pain and not to dwell there in some self-satisfying way, but but to lament is to both acknowledge the reality of our condition and to look to the one who rescues us, to, to look to the one who has come and who is coming. Um, and lament enables us to, to, to hold and be in that place. And I think it's so important because it's so easy to brush over um, it's been it's been interesting as we've entered this time of global pandemic. You know, those wanting to simply rush to the future and say, "Look, it'll be all be fine. Let's just press on, get on with it." Those 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 wanting to retreat back and wanting to go, "No, no, 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 no. We've got to hold on to everything." You know, and for some of us, simply wanted to curl up into a ball and say, "Wake me up when it's all over." But actually, inhabiting this time of lament, um, as we know, people who. We know people who die. We know people who are losing their jobs. We we know people who are losing their livelihoods and their homes, and their families are being put under such stress and threat from all sides. Um, and to lament with them, um, to say, "Yeah, this is painful," um, and to acknowledge that pain, and in acknowledging that pain, to know the healing balm of the Spirit's presence, not in a way that denies or minimizes or says it doesn't really matter or move on you know forgive and forget you know but but says no this this is a place of pain and we must rest here um, and find and in that together find a language find a vocabulary to bring that lament before the God who loves us and who calls us into relationship with him you know finding that vocabulary together is so vital. I mean, we're going through it in the Church of England at the moment as we try and find a vocabulary of lament as we respond to the independent inquiry into childhood sexual abuse. You know, trying to find a language of sort of how have we allowed this to happen, O oh Lord? You know, how have we sat by and you know and 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 predatory abusers have existed in our midst in positions of senior leadership and and we have colluded and shown difference to this. You know Finding, finding a vocabulary of lament in these times is vital because it enables us to find a way to hold our story. It enables us to begin to narrate the emotion and then we begin to discover um, a journey of healing and of recovery um, out of that. And it's that honesty, right? That willingness to weep with those who weep, to acknowledge the seriousness of things that gives us the ability to actually bring it back to God. You know, the, the, the relation, a relationship requires emotional honesty, I think. It, yeah, it, it does. And it also requires language. It requires a vocabulary. You know, okay, Lord, you know, 
when you bring this before the Lord, what are you bringing? You know, what what is the heartbreak of your soul that you bring before the Lord, whether it's yours or whether it's your friends or your families or those that you know or that you minister to? And what is it that you're bringing to the Lord? And be able to narrate that to the Lord. This is the pain that we hold, O Lord. Where are you? Do not relent, Lord. Come now. Come to us. You know, that that psalmic um, ability, desire to, to, in those moments of deep sigh, to, 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 to also know the one who is present and who is coming. You mentioned uh, a few moments ago the the independent inquiry into child sexual abuse. This is a a nationwide um, inquiry into different sectors of of British society and the way that they have dealt with sexual abuse. And many of our listeners will know that the Church of England um, is still reeling from the revelations of the report that was released from the group a few a few weeks ago. And of course, many other churches have faced similar uh, revelations and have had to struggle with them. You are yourself a survivor of childhood abuse. And you've mentioned that, I think, once or twice in our conversation. And you talk about it with great um, courage and vulnerability uh, in the book. It brings home how many people we encounter every day who may be victims of this kind of abuse and how ineffective the church has often been in protecting its most vulnerable members. My question is, you know, where, where do you think we go from here? I think what you had, what you said about reclaiming a language of lament, a vocabulary that allows us to talk about how awful this has been, that's got to be an important part of it. But you you yourself have thought and grappled with this deeply, and I I would be curious about what else you think um, our churches need to do to to be truly safe places for for all those who come to us. You know, one of the first things we need to do is listen to the pain of survivors. Um, we need to bring the voices, the lived experience, the lived reality of those who have survived or who've been victims of abuse that has been carried out within the church um, and their voices need to be empowered. Um, what abuse does is abuse disempowers you. It, it minimizes you. It squashes you. It forces you to conform yourself and your life into this tiny way of being so that you can maintain as much safety as you possibly can, as much control as you possibly can because you don't know where you're going to be harmed next. And I, I, I mean, my, my experience of childhood abuse took place outside of the church. And for me, faith has been the most wonderful, restorative place of healing and joy. And my lament as, as a priest now in the Church of England is that there are men and women who have had that stolen from them, cruelly stolen from them, that that gift of faith and faithfulness and a faithful church. Um, and, 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 and that's been stolen from them by, by those who were allowed to minister and to commit such crimes within the church. 
And so for me, our starting point begins by bringing the voices of survivors into the very center of all that is happening and empowering them. And actually, you know, the thing why people want to run away from lament is because it's deeply painful. You know, and there are people in leadership who need to sit down um, more. I mean, I, I congratulate there are those in leadership of the Church of England who are doing this, but there more need to do this as well. And in the wider church internationally to actually sit down and to listen and then not only to empower the voice of survivors, but also then to empower survivors to be to be bring to be change bringers, to help to inform what the next steps are to for us to come back and say look this is what we're going to do regarding safeguarding and allow survivors to say okay yeah that's safe or no that's not safe what do you think you're doing with that um, and ultimately it's about changing our culture which sounds like a mad thing to say to the body of christ i mean <laughs> yeah but but such is the effect and such is the just the toxic nature of sin that it weaves its way into our lives and and it exists in dishonesty and it exists in hiddenness and it exists in shame and in fear um, that that we need to uh, develop um, a culture where where actually we we each own all of us who are public disciples who are in positions of leadership who are deacons and priests and bishops of the church that we need to um, own our responsibility before god for justice for the for the vulnerable justice for the stranger justice for the alien you know to to rend our hearts and not our garments as the prophet joel would want to remind us um, there needs to be a darn sight more rending of hearts in these days. I think it's possible. I, I think change is coming. Um, one of the things I get to do, I'm responsible for safeguarding in the life of theological college, but I also have had opportunity to join in some of the working boards around training in safeguarding for the Church of England. And, and there are amazing people there who are bringing their skills and their gifts, their professional experience, and who are really leading change. And we're beginning to see that happen now. But 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 there is but there's a long way to go. And to be frank, one of the most important things that we need to ditch that needs to be thrown overboard is deference. Um, the 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 as soon as we can put deference to death, the uh, better. You know, the 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 sooner that um, we can lose the um, opaqueness of the appointment systems that can occur within the Church of England, the better. Anything that causes um, uh, ministers of the gospels to sort of basically sort of bow their head uh, towards their superiors in the hopes that in behaving themselves and by not speaking out, by not noticing or by not saying something um, that maybe just maybe they'll be noticed and opportunity might come their way, the sooner that can be put to death. The better it will be for all. Yeah. I mean, you. I think both in your willingness to talk about your own experience of abuse and to, I think to give us a sense of how many parts of of life and development that touches, especially when you experience abuse as a young person. And then also the way that you model this 
humble, gracious, vulnerable kind of leadership. Those are both great gifts to the church at a time like this, when this is exactly the kind of models that we need, I think, from what you're saying, that um, if we can really be more honest and, and gracious with each other and more humble, we perhaps can set a new cultural standard for what Christian leadership is like. Yeah. And I think also, Mark, you're using very kind words to describe me. You really ought to, you're, you're, you really ought to spend some time chatting with Tamsin, <laughs> my wife. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, but, but I think what I would want to say is when, I, when, when our new ordinands arrive, or when all of our new students arrive at St. Melitus, I do an introductory talk around safeguarding. I train them around safeguarding. But one of the things I tell them all, is that we have safeguarding is part of our college's uh, standing agenda for its leadership team. We have representatives on our governing board for safeguarding. And what I say to all of our students is, look, if any of you have a concern about me, please go straight to our governing board. These are the people you can talk to. So I, th I think it's not it's it's about honesty. It's about humility. It's about openness, but it's also about transparent accountability as well. And it's about saying that just because I can talk about this does not make me any better or, or any less of a risk than anyone or, 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 any, or someone who shouldn't be accountable. Um, but that actually, uh, but by talking about this, by being open, by working hard not to keep things hidden, by not to hold secrets, then, then hopefully I, 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 I basically minimise my, my risk to others and maximise um, the opportunity to make Christ known within that because that's what I want to do. I want people to know Jesus. I want people to make their journey home um, and to do that in community with one another in safety and in joy. Oh, that's, that's really helpful. That's really helpful. This, as you know, is a time when many people are experiencing struggles with mental health who have not done so in the past. Um, a survey done back in June here in the U.S. showed that 40% of people said they were struggling with mental health issues or with substance abuse. We're looking at the coming of the winter and um, even more perhaps a resurgence of the coronavirus like what you're currently experiencing in the UK. You work with uh, training people to speak uh, messages of hope, to share God's word, to lead congregations. What, what should people like this be talking about? Um, in their Sunday sermons, in their Bible studies, when they meet with with their parishioners? What kind of message should uh, we be sharing? And what can we do to help those who are really struggling? Well, I think it's a case of both noticing the hardship of the day and the hope of the day as well. Um, I think it's gently holding that balance of, of the reality of of life and of lived existence. One of the things that I, I started at the beginning of this year, not knowing there was going to be a global pandemic, um, but I decided that I'm normally a glass, well, no, um, my wife is a glass overflowing person. I am a, there is no glass person. Um, and I decided that each day this year, I would notice hope. So each day this year, I have recorded and I've just done a little thing on social media more to make myself do it each day than for any other reason. Um, and I've just recorded a little thought about how I've encountered hope this day. 
and how I've encountered hope in the ordinary moments of life. It was really interesting. When I started off the journey at the beginning of the year of noticing hope each day, I think I was looking at, at the sort of big things. But actually, as the year has gone on, I've seen hope in, in the kindness of the ordinary, of the interaction of people and of others. Of, um, and there's great joy in that. And I think if we can develop the skill of noticing the hope of the ordinary and in the ordinary, then that's a great gift to be able to offer people daily, uh, particularly in these days that are going to be dark and they are going to be hard and they're going to be costly. But but sort of hope in the day. And the, in that knowing hope in the day, do we also know the hope of Jesus Christ, um, our Saviour, and the one who awaits us as we make our journey home. And And also, I think really, really importantly, and I think churches are getting much better, beginning to find ways to talk about um, mental health but but you know we have to we have to lose and have to wake up to stigma um, that it's really easy to stigmatize someone um, um, I, I experience it yeah um, and it's a really I you know there are lots of people in leadership who won't talk about some of their struggles in life and they should have done um, but they haven't talked about them because they've been fearful of stigma. They've been fearful of what that would mean for their ministry. And, um, and you know, and, and, and basically stigma is, is what we project onto other people. It's, it's our fears. It's our lack of knowing. So one of the things that all of us can be doing in these days is actually educating ourselves a little, going on to good, reliable resources on the web. I mean, here in the UK, we've got some great mental health charities who provide really good online, reliable, validated resources where you can just educate yourself a little bit. Okay, so that's what bipolar disorder is. Okay, I always kind of thought it was people going sort of slightly crazy in their head and picking up sharp objects and threatening me. But no, it's not that. In fact, it's a spectrum of different conditions. Right, okay. And and this is the risk that it poses for people as well. You know, if we can do a little bit of educating ourselves, then then maybe we wouldn't be so afraid. We wouldn't project our fear when we met the person who who maybe feels a stranger to us because of their mental ill health, or maybe starts to talk about mental health in a way that that we kind of think to ourselves, oh, you know, yeah, I recognize some of that in me, but I just don't know how to find the words to describe it. So if we could start to acknowledge the impact of stigma, if we can begin to call it out and then begin to educate ourselves, then I think there's a real opportunity um, to minister effectively to people. I'm so grateful for the role that your writing is doing in that work and the way that you're pointing us back to Jesus and urging us to look to him um, and to find his presence and his help in the midst of all that we face. So thank you so much for sharing this time with me today and, and sharing more about your book, Broken by Fear, Anchored in Hope, Faithfulness in an Age of Anxiety. And I would encourage all of you to go out and, and, and read and, and learn how better to offer hope to those who suffer in these times. Thanks for tuning in to the Living Church Podcast, a ministry of the Living Church Institute. If you'd like to support this podcast so we can continue to make these episodes, you can find a link for giving in the show notes. Look for more coming soon on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, 
on our website, livingchurch.org, or on our award-winning blog, Covenant, at livingchurch.org forward slash covenant. Tune in Thursday, December 3rd for our next episode, Policing in America Today. We interview two police officers turned clergy, the Reverend Gail Fisher Stewart and the Right Reverend Jose McLaughlin, for their take on calls for police reform and where it might lead in the United States. As always, I'm your host, Amber Noel, and I've been glad to be with you. Peace.